everyone. Welcome back to the Minute Women podcast. My name is Grace. And I'm Linnea. And it's Friday. It's Friday. Well, it's Wednesday for it's everybody It's Wednesday else. for you. Wednesday for you, but big TGI Friday yeah. feelings. Vibes. Here. Vibes yeah. here in the studio. <laughs> Feeling good. Yep. And it's our last installment of, of November's series of war commemoration yep. stories. Um, which have been poignant and really great, but also very sad. Very so sad. I'm yeah. not, I'm I'm glad that we did this. I think it was really good to do for the month of November, but I'm not. Yeah. I'm happy. I'm excited to be happy again. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited <laughs> to do some like lighter stories starting next week. Yeah. And also just like, for me, it was good because it forced me to sit down and write them. Like yeah. the Dextrays one was one that I was just like, this is going to be such a depressing day when yeah. I have to do the research and write this story. Yeah. <laughs> and same with the, all the other ones. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm happy that this is our last one. Yeah. Do you want to know what the last one is? Yeah. This one's for you, buddy. Okay. Cause you have requested oh, it no. numerous times oh, no. throughout this month. And also outside oh, of that month, no. we are doing Osborne in Hong Kong, <sighs> which is a great heritage. So moment. the guy who plays the dude who jumps on the grenade and, and dies, yep. his name's like, Ted Disturka or something. <laughs> so his name is Ted Dykstra. Yes. yes. And he's been in a plethora of films, a, as we have come to realize. A plethora of things. He's been in Neptune. He's been in Republic of... Well, Neptune, like, he's been in Neptune Theater here yeah. in Halifax. Uh, the planet. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the TV show Republic of Doyle, which has another heritage minute. Yes. Uh, guy in it. I don't Hako. think he's been a regular in that, but uh, he's also in Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, which is a super cute kid show cute. about Mr. Rogers. Um, he's been in the Shattered City. He was in the Shattered City miniseries, which with is you. what I was in. <laughs> with me. With he you. was in it yeah. with me. He was your co-star. Uh, yeah, <laughs> my co-star but uh yeah so he's a he's got a very Canadian seemingly wholesome film and stage career yeah I wonder where he's like based out of now because if he did Neptune for so long he must have been based out of Halifax for yeah a good chunk of his a good career. chunk of his career but I don't know where he is now wherever you are Ted yeah if you're listening Ted um, we'd love to hear from you we'd love to hear from you we love your heritage minute yeah. it's a very epic one it's it's very in the vein of like Andy Minarski. And it's stuff. also very much those 2005 Heritage Minutes. I think this is an older one, actually. Oh, is I it? think it's a 90s one. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, maybe not. I, I don't I'm know. not sure. But it's like essentially a bunch of Canadian soldiers who were part of the Battle of Hong Kong in yes. World War II. And they are fighting uh, and resisting against a Japanese advance. And the Japanese are throwing grenades in the building and they're like yeah. catching them and throwing them back. But then there is a grenade that they can't throw back. And so uh, John Robert Osborne, he sacrifices his life by putting his helmet down on the grenade. And he was the first Canadian to receive the Victorian Cross yeah. for the Second World War. Because he blows. Because he sacrifices he blows his up. life. It, well, it doesn't go well for him. <laughs> but he does yeah. save the rest of his That's life. That's what I remember as a kid, though, watching this Heritage Minute. I was just like, it's like when you're watching, you're watching, and then it's just like you sit in front of the TV with like your mouth open, and you're like, uh. Mom, mom, and they're so violent, and it's mom. just intercut with other TV shows that yeah. are just like wholesome. And it's like randomly yeah. a man dying in it's front like, of you. I'm just trying to watch Degrassi. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I'd say Degrassi is the most violent Canadian TV show. 
It's possible. It's possible. A lot of There's a lot of trauma. That's for sure. Yeah, a lot of emotional. It's definitely trauma. traumatic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Glee Degrassi. and like all those other shows are just standing on the shoulders of Degrassi. <laughs> of Degrassi. That really set the bar for what you could put teenagers through. It's so true. It's so true. They uh, Degrassi did it first in a lot of <laughs> in a lot of ways. That's for sure. I think some. If we do another, um, should have been a minute segment. <laughs> I think you should just kind of devote your time to breaking down Degrassi. <laughs> I'll need a, a I'll, I'll need a visual. I was gonna say I will need a visual. <laughs> Family trees, uh, the genealogy of it. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot. But uh, but back to Ted. Back and to Ted as John Robert as jo- Osborne. John Robert Osborne. John so that's Robert who he Osborne. is. That's who we're talking about. Yes, not Ted. Not his. Well, you yeah, know. <laughs> Ted. In real life. But I feel like he did him justice portraying him. It definitely stands out. It is one yeah. that personally I never really considered. But when I tell other people about this podcast or we have people on, it is one that people are like, oh, the Osborne in Hong Kong. Yeah. yeah. Osborne. I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, I a do vi- it, that one. it's also, yeah, a violent death, which isn't. Yeah. It's yeah. very, it's visceral. It is. Yeah. Visceral. Yeah. So what. Brought him there. I never think of World War II as being in Hong Kong. And that's probably like yeah. my lack of historical knowledge. But yeah, it's the Pacific theater of World War II is less of Canada's participation. Well, but it's our yeah. earliest participation. Okay. Um, because as we'll get into, there's a lot of resistance and hesitation after the First World War to send men overseas anywhere. Yeah. Um, and Hong Kong winds up being the first time Canadian soldiers are deployed for action. So this is, hence he's the first Victorian Cross uh, recipient of the, the Second World War for the Canadians because yeah. it happened so early on. Right. Um, but it's, I think it definitely gets overlooked in Canada's military history. A lot of people want to focus on the Western Front right. and the Second World War. Yeah, and, it's a little bit more, yeah. um, I don't know if the word is glamorous, but it's romanticized a lot more. Definitely romanticized, definitely overemphasized. Like yeah. if you talk about World War II, it all hinges on things happening in Eastern Europe and in Russia. Yeah. But um, I'd say that morally, you have a lot of really interesting things that come out of the Pacific theater. That's where well, you have these racial tensions that yeah. you don't see in other theaters. You have the use of atomic weapons for the first time. Yeah. Um, the use, uh, the, the experience of, of prisoners of war is really unique in the Pacific theater, really brutal in the mm. Pacific theater. So I think it's a very interesting part of yeah. Canada's military history that uh, usually gets kind of sidelined to talk about. Right deployments in France. Right. Well, the only living survivor I personally know of World War II, mm. he was in the Navy. Okay. And like spent his time in the Pacific. Right. Like, right. so I don't know how much time, I just know from talking to him, they didn't spend a lot of time on land. It no. was like a sea battle. Um, was he on an aircraft carrier? But yes. So yeah. he was on an aircraft carrier and uh, he was a, became a commander, I think. Um, but was very, very young when he started. But yeah, he spent he spent his time in that Pacific kind of realm. So I just remember it's one of my best friends, his grandfather. Oh, okay. And so when um, the Band of Brothers came out, yeah. uh, and then Pacific came out, he was very interested in Pacific because yeah. it was more Pacific like, is such a disappointment. It's <laughs> it such really a, tries to do what Band of Brothers such was. such a disappointment. 
but uh, I think it's a disappointment. Mark doesn't quite disagree. Mark is Mark is disagreeing with us. It's not terrible. It's just no. not Band of Brothers. Band of Brothers was just so damn well done. It's so well done. And, and I know it's problematic for other reasons, but it is yeah. such a good TV series. Yeah, if you can get past the fact that it's just so American central, yeah, um, it's really good. Which I mean, as a Canadian, most of our media is. So it yeah. doesn't even really. I mean, it just kind of. It's yeah, it doesn't really kind of affect me as yeah. much in media because I just expect that. This is a total tangent, but I've I've for a while, for my own sake, have been wanting to write an analysis of how Band of Brothers formed every Call of Duty game. Like every Call of Duty or World War II game, the way in which that they the perspective that they use in the gameplay and the perspective of the cutscenes is like is Band of Brothers. Like, I think without Band of Brothers, uh, the entire media of war games would be completely different. Really? Yeah. That's that's my I don't know video games enough to be able to, like, recognize that or have even, like, seen that. Having been a spectator of a lot of them growing up. With (laughs) brothers? I was just, like, because I would watch them play games, and then I didn't watch Band of Brothers until maybe, like, two or three years ago. Okay. And I was like, oh, oh, this is it. Like, this yeah. is where it comes from. Yeah. It's this. Uh, yeah, it's so good. But anyways, we're going to get into the true real-life story of John of Robert Osborne. Osborne. Yeah. Who was born on January 2nd, 1899, in Folden, Norfolk, England. Oh. So he's actually English-born. Um, at 14, he dropped out of school and joined the Royal Naval Division during the First World War, serving as an infantryman on the Western Front in 1918. So he's also a veteran of the First World War. Shoot. At like He's a, not young. No, like he was deployed. But yeah, for the First World War, he's extremely young. He's deployed as soon as he's 18. Right. Um, and yeah, so after the war in 1920, John immigrated to Canada. Okay. So he acquired a farm in Saskatchewan and farmed it for two years before deciding to move to Winnipeg, where he worked as a general laborer. John got married in 1926 and had five children during the Great Depression years. Woof. What a young adulthood. Nothing nothing to do but bang out some babies. Bang out some babies during the Great Depression. <laughs> you turn 18, your first experience as an adult is serving on the Western Front. Yeah. And then you go to Canada where you get a farm. That doesn't pan out. You get married and then you have five children did, did during the, farm, the worst economic crisis yeah. in history. Did the farm not pan out or did, was he just not feeling it? Uh, it didn't really specify, but I would okay. guess that... That he had never farmed before. Right. And that's hard. So, yeah, (laughs) it sounds like he just didn't have a lot of experience farming and was just like, I can do that. And then he couldn't do that. So, yeah. And then he just worked as a laborer. (laughs) (laughs) Am I boring you? In 1933, Osborne joined the Winnipeg Grenadiers, a militia infantry battalion. So he's also serving in the military as well. Shit. So Canada entered the Second World War against Germany in 1939, but the Canadian Army saw very little action during the early years of the conflict. Canada's military was small and unprepared for war. Furthermore, the country was still shell-shocked from the immense loss of life caused by the First World War. So there's not a lot of popular support for sending people overseas. Yeah. Fair. You know. Granted. (laughs) 
Prime Minister William Lyle Mackenzie King was cautious about committing soldiers to battle, especially sending large numbers of soldiers overseas, which might require conscription and reignite the conscription yeah. debate between French and English Canadians. Yeah. I think that should be a Heritage Minute, actually. For sure. The conscription I don't think debate. William Lyle Mackenzie King, which... That's a name, by the I way. I know. It's like, fuck JFK. Yeah. We got four names. Yeah. William, <laughs> Lyon, and Lion. Lion. Like, that's cool. I know. It's not even like Lyle or something. No, no it's Lion, Lion which is cool. <laughs> um, but yeah, he doesn't have a Heritage Minute. He deserves he something. Doesn't. He is our, I think he's, other than John A. McDonald, our longest serving prime minister, I think. That's I think about right. Due to the Second World War, there was like emergency measures. Yeah, much like uh, with Winston Churchill in yes. England being brought back. Yeah, so I think they're very contemporaries. I think, like, yeah. Mackenzie King is our Churchill in some ways. Yeah? Yeah. They yeah. kind of look similar. I was just going to say. <laughs> Maybe I'm just All I know is that they've, they've both got jowl, jowls. like <laughs> Jowls in World War II. Yeah. <laughs> So during the early uh, years of World War II, Canada largely participated in the war effort in non-military fashions, such as making uh, armaments, growing food, and training air crews under the new British Commonwealth Air Training Plan. So that's Andy Minarski. It's like all that Air Force stuff very early on. Andy. Andy. It's also, well, it's also funny because, like, as far as Andys go, I know one Andy in real life who's... So sweet. Oh, we curl with. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Such a nice guy. And then there's like Andy from Toy Story. <laughs> Lovely guy from what I've seen. Great in, kid. In four installments. Um, and then there's Andy Monarski. Andy Monarski. Name your kids Andy if you want a good one. <laughs> my thesis advisor for my undergrad was an Andy. Was he nice? Absolutely. He's oh. like one of my favorite professors. And he See? like still writes me like letters of recommendation and stuff. He's Case in point. Wonderful guy. <laughs> Case in point. Case in point. Andy. Good name. Good, good people. It goes on the good list. Yeah. <laughs> Canada's only military action before 1941 had been the Royal Canadian Navy's participation in the Battle of the Atlantic and the few Canadian airmen who had assisted in the Battle of Britain. So Canada joins the war effort in a military fashion pretty late, but the war is waging elsewhere in the world. Okay. Japan, for example, had been waging war in China since 1937, but it had avoided open hostilities against the West. Hmm. By 1940, the British were fighting for survival against Germany. They realized that defending Hong Kong would be virtually impossible if the colony and other Asian possessions were attacked by Japan. So okay. Britain recognizes that like, they're throwing everything into the Western front and they really yeah. need some colonial powers or commonwealth powers to take charge in the pacific i do remember from ib history japan being quite monumental in world war ii at least for yeah. a portion um, oh yeah like japan and russia and uh, there's a lot yeah. of war propaganda with like a lot of images yeah about like japan and russia and their involvement yeah, like when we say World War One spans from 1939 to 1945, it really ignores the fact that Japan had been conquering basically the entire South Pacific for right. like the decade leading up to that. That's crazy. So they're fighting against Russia. They're taking over other colonial pro uh, possessions. A lot of China is being conquered by Japan during this period of time. Now, Japan's small. Japan is pretty small as uh, well, just a compared landmass. to Russia. Yeah. But is their population I mean, very dense? They have a pretty high population. Okay. Yeah. And they also just have, I mean, 
I'm not an expert on Japan by any means, but they have this like disclaimer. (laughs) I don't know anything, but they have a very militant uh, culture. culture. And so when like there are stories of soldiers in the second world war fighting for Japan that they, they're so obsessed with the cult of the emperor that when they are told that, to surrender because the war is over, they think it's Western propaganda. Like there's a guy right. who lived on an island in near Japan. I think it was in, I think Papua New Guinea. And he was like killing people on this island for Japan into like the 60s. Oh, yeah. So like I do know a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, just about how and and how after... Uh, well, I guess that's World War II, but yeah. especially like the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. like people didn't know the Vietnam War was over. Yeah, for a long like, time. Like there were people for years who like were still fighting like in the jungle, like not knowing that yeah. the war was yeah, yeah, done, yeah. which is so sad. Oh, and so like heartbreaking and just like. But this guy in particular, like they told him multiple times they would drop newspapers with like headlines like, like war is over. Yeah. And he was just like propaganda like it's just so convinced that your country can't fall that's so and if they they would never surrender because you'd rather kill yourself than surrender like that's the culture so yeah japan is like really interesting in the second world war and extremely militant um and because of a lot of racial notions about asian people a lot of white nations are like they're weak and and we'll be able to defeat them very easily because like Japanese right. and Asian people are cowardly and they're physically weaker than us yeah. and like all these other things. So there's a lot of weird background stuff. Weird when fighting Japan background <laughs> racism. Yeah, yeah, yeah from yeah. the propaganda side of things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they they know that Hong Kong is going to be really hard to defend. Okay. Um, Nevertheless, uh, Britain decided that a show of force might deter any possible Japanese aggression, and it sought troops to reinforce the British and Indian units already garrisoned in Hong Kong. So is Hong Kong still part of the British Commonwealth at this time? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So in 1941, Britain made a request for Canadian troops to help bolster its remote Asian colony of Hong Kong, partly in response to the growing pressure from English Canadians who wanted to see Canada have a larger role in the conflict, Prime Minister King agreed to send two battalions overseas for what was assumed at the time to be merely garrison duty. Okay. So it's not even proposed to be active conflict. You're just going to go there and you're going to, like, man the garrison. Right. Chief of the General Staff, Harry Carrar, was assigned the task of managing the two dispatch battalions, the Winnipeg Grenadiers and the Royal Rifles of Canada from Quebec City. So the Grenadiers is uh, Osborne's unit. Okay. Both units had some experience servicing on garrison duty and also had veterans from previous conflicts like John Osborne. Mm -hmm. However, neither unit was at full strength in 1941, nor had they participated in battalion training exercises. Okay. This was not seen to be of great significance, though. (laughs) They're just like, well, they're undermanned and underprepared, but boy, are they excited. (laughs) Boy, are they ready to go. A little little slap on the bum and off you go. I know. It's just like, this seems to always happen where they're just like, we're not ready for active combat, but I think we can do it anyways. Which says to me either that they're extremely always naive and never learning their lesson or that like 
that happens all the time and like it usually pans out so we don't hear about it yeah <laughs> so like we're almost always underprepared but <laughs> it usually works out in the end so that's my fine. life mantra just always <laughs> underprepared always underprepared. <laughs> if you just like don't worry about it then yeah. the stress won't interfere <laughs> with your you know your ability to perform yeah a Japanese attack against British territories in the Pacific seemed highly unlikely in ni- th- this part of 1941. Right. And even if one came, the prevailing racial attitudes of the time convinced many Canadians and British military leaders that the superior white troops would teach the Japanese troops a lesson. Okay. So, yeah, you have, like, these racial notions, and at the time there have, hasn't been any active conflicts between... Um, like allied troops and Japanese troops. Right. The Japanese are there and they're kind of like, they, they basically agree to align with the Germans partly because Jap- Japan is like also like somewhat of a fashion fascist country, but they have colonial desires that the Germans are like, we'll let you take over these like islands if you just like yeah. align ourse- yourselves with us. Yeah. So, yeah, there isn't a lot of active open conflict between Western countries and Japan yet. Okay. So the two undermanned Canadian battalions were quickly filled out with new additions. Uh, These were inexperienced troops, and they were shipped across to the Pacific under the command of Brigadier J.K. Lawson. Mm -hmm. The force included 1,973 officers and men plus two nursing sisters. Okay. (laughs) It's like 2,000 guys and two nurses. That's so stupid. (laughs) Which I think also signals, like, how little they thought they were actually going to be in open conflict. It's just like, they're there probably just in case they get some kind of tropical disease and like, we need to figure that shit out. Oh God. Um, The ship arrived in Hong Kong on the 16th of November, joining a military garrison that now totaled 14,000 men. Okay. The garrison's task was to defend a small hill-capped colony of 1.6 million residents spread across a section of the mainland, including the New Territories and Kowloon, as well as Hong Kong Island itself. Okay. The defenders had only a few naval vessels at their disposal and no air force to speak of. To make matters worse, the Canadian contingent's vehicles sent across the Pacific on a separate ship from the troops had not arrived in Hong Kong, but had arrived in Manila, where they had been diverted for the use of American forces. So it's like, sorry, folks, the Americans need your cars. (laughs) It's just like, well, what are we supposed to do? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. The Americans needed the cars. Sorry, the Americans needed the cars in Manila. So... Everything changes on the 7th of December. So three weeks after the Canadians arrived in Hong Kong and they had kind of slowly started to settle down into the quiet routine of garrison life, Japan stunned the world by attacking the United States Naval Fleet at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. Dun, dun, dun. Very different circumstances after this point. Little little Ben Affleck. (laughs) Little, little, uh... Yeah, that other girl, Michael Bay. Michael Bay. Explosions yes. everywhere. Yes, that song. What song was it that was in that? Um, My Heart Will Go On. Nope. <laughs> nope. Oh, that was a bit. That was Titanic. <laughs> that wasn't funny. That was, I'm laughing. <laughs> so after the Pearl Harbor attack, suddenly the whole Pacific theater, once an afterthought in the early years of the Second World War, was now at the very forefront of the yeah. conflict. And America's pissed. And America is like, 
now it's my problem. Yeah. Have you ever seen that? Like, it's an old uh, robot chicken uh, skit, and it's basically World War II if every country was, like, a kid in a second grade Yes, class. I have I seen that. It. It's so funny. It's one of my favorite things, and it's just, like, little Hitler, and the teacher's like, sorry, Hitler, <laughs> you can't have more than one desk. And he's like, but I wanted a Polish child's <laughs> desk, too. <laughs> so he just suddenly is accumulating all these desks. But, the like, America is just this, like, chill guy. It's like, not my problem. And then the Japanese kid comes over and, like, knocks over his milk. He's like, now it's my problem. <laughs> it so is, that's where we're at. We're at yeah, now it's my problem. Yeah, yeah, I get that. So the Battle of Hong Kong begins the day after Pearl Harbor. So it goes from the 8th of December to the 25th of December, 1941. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, guys. <laughs> Happy um, birthday, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> it's also known as the Defense of Hong Kong or the Fall of Hong Kong. Spoiler alerts. Um, and was one of the first battles in the Pacific uh, theater of World War II. On the morning of the Pearl Harbor attacks, forces from the Empire of Japan attacked the British Crown Colony of Hong Kong. The attack was in violation of international law as Japan had not declared war against the British Empire. The Hong Kong garrison consisted of British, Indian, and Canadian units, also the Auxiliary Defense Units, and the Hong Kong Voluntary Defense Corps. Okay. The invaders bombed the colony's airfield and other military installations and quickly overran the troops defending the mainland portion of the territory. The defenders here included the men of D Company of the Winnipeg Grenadiers, who on the 11th of December 1941 became the first Canadian Army troops to engage in combat in the Second World War. After five days of fighting, Kowloon and the mainland fell to the Japanese. Major General C.M. Maltby, Hong Kong's military commander, refused Japanese demands for surrender, despite there being no hope of relief from outside the colony. So, great decisions. Stubborn. <laughs> Stubborn. <Yeah>. Men. Never. <laughs> Instead, Maltby relied on his remaining untested soldiers, including the bulk of the Canadian battalions, to defend Hong Kong Island, where most of the civilian population lived. Okay. Maltby split his island forces into two brigades, one encompassing the Royal Rifles of Canada under the overall command of British Brigadier C. Wallace, and the other, including the Winnipeg Grenadiers, under the overall command of Brigadier Lawson from Canada. Okay. For the next two weeks, the troops from each brigade fought for their lives. Mm-hmm. Short of water, without adequate transportation, because they took the freaking cars to Manila. Right. <laughs> All of the cars are in Manila. I just need a Subaru. <laughs> Subaru, sponsored. The Minimum Podcast, sponsored by Subaru. Uh. And they were also being pounded by the enemy's superior artillery and command of the skies. The defenders did what they could to stem the Japanese advance following their amphibious landing on the island's beaches. The Japanese quickly overran Kowloon. On the night of the 18th of December, three Japanese regiments landed on Hong Kong Island, rapidly overcame the beach defenses, and then moved inland. Early the next day, A Company was ordered to advance on Mount Butler on Hong Kong Island and recapture it. Osborne led his part of the company in a bayonet charge, retook the summit, and held it against Japanese counterattacks for the next three hours. So this is all just like infantry soldiers yeah like, like we're talking bayonet charges bayonets like, yeah which, god yeah it's it's not something i envisioned in the second world war like I definitely first either. world war but like we got world guns war, i know yeah well that's yeah that's the other thing like the scary part of world war ii is like the lack of armaments some right. armies had like russia went in with the like notion of 
only half the soldiers would have guns sometimes because if someone dies, you pick up their gun and like that's how you arm troops. What the hell? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's not great. No. Like, I'm just gonna throw it out there. I know everyone loves. Everyone's like has these <laughs> fantasy notions of like, oh god, I wish I was just a soldier in the Russian army in World <laughs> War II. Um, but I'm here to dispel those fantasies that people have created. And it wasn't a fun time. So romanticized. Oh god. Stalingrad. So romanticized. <laughs> Did you know Stalingrad is bad? <laughs> Stalingrad's like worse than trains sometimes. Oh god, so bad. <laughs> it's more communist than trains. Yes, exactly. Just a little though. Just a little. <laughs> okay. When a larger Japanese force attacked, it forced Company Sergeant Major Osborne and his men back down the mountain, where they rejoined their company. So they've okay. done like, and and that's the thing. It's like. It's kind of hopeless, but they still have to go and, like, do these military maneuvers. So they're going, they're retaking a summit, and then the Japanese just take it back, so they have to retreat, and you're losing lives doing that. Yeah. Uh, Later, the Japanese... War is not a fun time. I just want to... It's like... Yeah. I I get why the United Nations in our last episode was like, all right, no more wars. Yeah. But uh, I think they just went about it the wrong way. I yeah. agree with the message. It's a cool concept. It's a cool concept. Yeah. <laughs> I really see where you were going with that. But uh. And the worst part, like the craziest part is, is that I'm pretty sure the 20th century, despite the First World War, despite the Second World War, despite all of the conflicts, <laughs> is throughout that that century was the least, the lowest percentage chance that you would die of a violent act right so like right i see what you're saying like low level violence is so common throughout human history that statistically the 20th century was the 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 lowest rate of violent deaths right and that's in spite of like that's crazy the biggest conflicts we've ever fought it's crazy Yeah, humans don't like each other. Yeah. (laughs) Someday it'll just be one guy standing on a hill and he'll be like, I did it. (laughs) And then he'll just shoot himself. (laughs) Um, So later the Japanese surrounded the company, then sheltering in a little depression. By the mid-afternoon, the company had driven off two attacks, but eventually the Japanese worked close enough to throw hand grenades into the Canadian position. Osborne picked up many of these grenades and threw them back at the enemy. Finally, a grenade fell where he could not get to it in time. Without hesitation, Osborne shouted a warning, pushed a soldier aside, and then selflessly threw himself on the grenade. Uh, it exploded and killed him no, instantly. Oh, sad. Yeah. That's the minute. So that's, yeah. That's so that's the minute. minute. And it's just, like, hard because it's, like, yeah, he's not young. He has five kids. Yeah. Like, this is just like a man with a whole life but it's also a little bit like tommy prince like it's all you know yeah this is your career this is all you know when you go home like you try to start up a farm which you have no idea how to do yeah like like this is what you're good at this is what you've been this is what you've been trained or lack of trained but this is what you've been doing he's been in the military or navy so uh, but that's sad very sad so Osborne's heroic act was one of many performed by Canadians. So did he in Hong save? Kong. He saved people. So he like saved. He saved, all, he saved every all the men that were heroes with. He like saved wow. their lives. Um, but there were also like there's lots of 
accounts of heroism in Hong Kong by Canadians. So to briefly highlight those, um, the same day, Brigadier Lawson's headquarters became surrounded by attackers at the Wong Nei Chong Gap, a strategic pass where a main road cut through the center of the island. With Japanese soldiers firing almost point-blank into his bunker, Lawson sent a radio message to Maltby, the colony's commander, that he was going outside to fight it out with the enemy. Lawson was quickly killed, but the Japanese would later make a note of that he died quite heroically. Um, On Christmas Day, with ammunition in short supply and the defending soldiers in desperate shape, D Company of the Royal Rifles was ordered to make what appeared to be a suicidal attack to retake lost ground at the south end of the island. According to an account from Sergeant George MacDonnell, The men received the orders in stunned silence. Not one of them could believe such a preposterous order, he said. Attacking with bayonets, the Royal Rifles succeeded in taking the position at a cost of 26 men killed and 75 wounded. Jeez. Hours later, the exhausted survivors learned that the colony had surrendered and the Battle of Hong Kong was over. That's your Christmas day. (laughs) It's like you lose 100 casualties and then you just find out it was totally for no reason that's worse than my day yesterday i had a bad day yesterday (laughs) but but that's worse but yeah (laughs) yeah, it's not it's not a great christmas it's not the one you look forward to nope (laughs) the horror for those who remained however was only beginning Although some Japanese units behaved with discipline after the battle, others carried out a campaign of terror, bayoneting wounded allied soldiers in hospitals, killing and raping nurses, and mutilating some prisoners. What the hell? The Japanese are notorious for, like, yeah, like, really, really, like, brutal treatment of prisoners of war. So, like, not that I think Senator McCain was, like, a political hero, but like when he was a down pilot and I believe he was captured, uh, that was Korea. Sorry. But yeah. similar, similar situation similar. of like, just like the treatment of POWs is absolutely appalling. Well, the movie on broken is world yeah. war two, I believe. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's that guy who was in that, he passed away in like 2012. Yeah. Like it was very recent that mm. he, that he passed away and his story is just whew, remarkable. It's insane. Like it just chills. Like it's, yeah. Yeah. Which, which is also a fantastic movie. And Angelina Jolie directed that. Yeah. Yeah. Which is very random. Yeah. But, uh, like, but yeah. World War One, I, I think is like a, a very like obviously appalling conflict and it's, it's very hard to, to to understand because it's just this like war of attrition for no reason yeah. it feels like um but world war ii it's the treatment of like there's no distinguishing feature between civilians and soldiers anymore because yeah. home front is just as important as front lines and so there's just no there's total disregard for like we should be treating civilians differently than soldiers so right. like you have the bombings and you have like fire bombings of Germany. You have fire bombings of Tokyo. Like those are right. allied soldiers killing civilians. On the flip side, you have like the rape of damn king, yeah. like Japanese soldiers, which is just like days of just brutal massacres and yeah. rapes in the streets of Nanking. Like Ugh. it's the most like horrific six years of humanity well, unfolding all over yeah. the world. And I think yeah. in America and in Canada, like you have Pearl Harbor, but like those things don't even compare to no. what's happening no. in the rest of the theaters of the war. No. We have like internment camps for yeah. the Japanese like here, yeah. but 
yeah, it's just like, yeah, it's not a fun time. And different, different culture. And I mean, we talked, we touched on that a little, just about how like we were talking about Japan, that that's such a militant culture mm-hmm. that it, it definitely, you do definitely recognize that when you look at, it, it's almost like Canadians and Americans at that time just didn't know, like they just weren't at that level of callousness and like torture for the prisoners of war it was more of like it was more like prison as opposed to like full-on torture yeah it's like when your whole life isn't designed around like live or die for your country right you have you're less willing to do stuff for your country yeah not to say that yeah like i don't think that america and britain and Canada and France, like, are exempt from no. war crimes. Like, I mean, we talked about it in the last episode, Dextre's, like, yep. they were brutal to the German POWs that they captured. Yeah. But, like, the Japanese, it's just, like, another level. It's like, another level. Yeah, like, standing on the shoulders of giants when yeah. it comes to treating prisoners of war terribly. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, they're, yeah, they're in a league of their own. <laughs> yeah. So the civilian residents of Hong Kong now faced years under harsh Japanese occupation. The capture of British, Indian, and Canadian soldiers considered cowards by the Japanese for surrendering. So that's the other thing. Like, they just don't have a cultural understanding for why you should surrender. So, like, they they would rather kill themselves than surrender. So if you surrender, you don't deserve anything. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's like, you don't deserve anything from us. You don't deserve pity. We're not going to treat you nicely because you've just done the most cowardly thing you could do. Um, so these soldiers become prisoners of war first at camps in Hong Kong and later in Japan, where they endured years of beatings, hard labor and inadequate diets. Hundreds of the Canadian POWs died of illness and from slow starvation. In August of 1945, almost four years after the fall of Hong Kong, the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki forced Japan's surrender and ended the war in the Pacific. The Canadian military delivered food and medical help to the camps where POWs were suffering from diseases caused by vitamin deficiencies. Of the 1,973 Canadians sent to Hong Kong, 290 were killed and 493 were wounded during the battle and its immediate aftermath. Proof said veterans decades later that they had resisted fiercely and courageously before surrendering to the enemy. Another 264 Canadians died as prisoners of war, while 1,418 survivors returned to Canada. Okay. Many of them deeply bitter at the cruelty of their Japanese captors. Of course. At home, political pressure forced the government in Ottawa to appoint a royal commission to investigate the circumstances of Canada's involvement in Hong Kong. The sole commissioner, Chief Justice Lindman Duff, Uh, misinterpreted or ignored evidence and exonerated the cabinet, the Department of National Defense, and senior members of the military's general staff. In 1948, a confidential analysis by General Charles Folk, uh, chief of the general staff, found many errors in Duff's assessment, but concluded that proper training, staffing, and equipment would have made little difference given the overwhelming odds facing the defenders. So it was such like a failure in the eyes of the Canadian government that they were like, this needs to be investigated. Yeah. And while the reanalysis of this was like, yeah, these guys definitely didn't have sufficient sufficient training or like the sufficient equipment, like the transportation issue. Yeah. Um, but they're like, it also probably wouldn't matter. Mattered. It wouldn't have made a huge difference. Yeah. 
The 554 Canadians who died in Hong Kong and in prison camps afterwards are remembered today by a memorial to all of the Hong Kong defenders at the Siwan Bay War Cemetery there. This and the Stanley Military Cemetery in Hong Kong also hold the individual graves of 303 Canadian soldiers, 108 of whom are unidentified. Of another... 137 Canadians, most of whom died as prisoners of war, are buried at the British Commonwealth War Cemetery in Yokohama, Japan. So Osborne's heroic act was one of the first to earn uh, a Canadian the Victorian Cross, the highest award for bravery among troops of the British Empire. Osborne's sacrifice did not become known until after the war had ended. In 1946, he was posthumously awarded the Victoria Cross in recognition of his bravery in the Battle of Hong Kong. A statue of an anonymous soldier, formerly in a private collection and now located in Hong Kong Park on the site of the former Victoria Barracks, bears a plaque in memory of Osborne and through him all those men and women who performed acts of gallantry and self-sacrifice in the defense of the colony. Manitoba's Osborne Creek and John Osborne Lake are named in his honor. Uh, and that happened in 1973 and 1986, respectively. In 1991, a granite monument in honor of Osborne was dedicated at the John Osborne VC Tower Building in Winnipeg. Oh, So that's the story that's of so nice. John Osborne. Yeah, it's, I mean, it is, he is kind of like an Andy Minarski in the sense that it is like, yeah. He's like an ordinary guy. Just a guy. Who did one thing. And, and not one thing. Obviously, yeah, it's like no. a whole day of it, it, But it's just like, that's just who he is. Like yeah. He was just that type of guy, like Andy. Yeah, and it's like those kind of split-second split decisions, I think, really define yep. who a person is. And so yep. you can say pretty confidently that, like, any, I mean, you got to imagine, like like you said, like he's not young, and he's uh-uh. probably with, like, a bunch of young men. That and he's, like, like, taking care of. That he's taking care of. He is a dad. Like, yeah. I can just, like, picture what he was kind of yeah. like in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we covered that one. Yeah. And to uh, to Ted, <laughs> to Ted, if yeah. you're listening, we'd <laughs> great love job. To, yeah, great job <laughs> portraying Osborne. And uh, we'd love we'd love to chat with you. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Again, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Minute Women podcast and for listening to our episodes to commemorate all of our veterans through the month of November. We appreciate it so much. Um, For those of you who aren't following us on our social media channels, what are you doing? We're on Instagram at Minute Women Podcast and Facebook at the same name. And then we are on Twitter as The Minute Women. We also have a phenomenal website that's updated with lots of pictures and all of our episodes and all of the sources, as well as information about Grace and I and our interests and hobbies and you know, you know, <laughs> you know, don't you want to know more? Don't you want to know about it? <laughs> so go check that out too. That's at www.minutewomenpodcast.ca. And make sure that you download the episode, subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you listen to us on. And if there is the option to leave a review, make sure you rate and review the podcast, especially Apple podcast. We have been getting a couple of reviews rolling in and we think that before we like, we'll probably take a break over the holidays, but before we do that, we'll probably go through some of those reviews and stuff and thank those people that have left them. So if you want a little shout out on the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave us a review. It sure is. And also make sure that you recommend the podcast to your friends. Word of mouth is the best review. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.
Thank you.